0: We've mainly focused on the um, esophageal cancers and the gastric cancers and now we're moving in more so to the the pancreatic and and the liver cancers so they're they're the main cancers that we're including in the in the upper GI remit so you know the esophageals have a lot of morbidity associated with their cancer you know they have a lot of weight loss before they even get diagnosed they have problems with swallowing so a lot of morbidity associated with that a lot of weight loss and functional decline with that and um, post-operatively major changes in um, nutrition major changes in um, absorption problems with uh, weight loss and with that big functional decline. It came from that recognition that this group are very complicated, have a lot going on um, and are very understudied.
1: What is happening, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Reach Podcast. My name is Kieran Fairman. I'm the host of the show, and I've got a really cool episode lined up for you today. I'm chatting to Dr. Emer Guinen, who is an assistant professor at Trinity College in Dublin. And Emer's group has done a ton of work in esophagogastric cancer. And has done a really good job of building this multidisciplinary team to kind of approach this area, this 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 population um, from a bunch of different angles in relation to exercise and nutrition and things like that. So we chat about all that today. We chat about um, some of Emer's work, what she's been doing in this space, what she got coming up and also some of her expertise in the area of kind of developing multidisciplinary teams. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you get something out of it. And other than that, enjoy the show and I'll catch you in the next one. Well, listen, Ima, I, I really appreciate your time. Um, I know you're exceptionally busy with all the things you've got going on right now. And as I said to you off air, it, I've admired the work you've done for a, from afar for a long time. And to see what's been going on for you in the last few years in particular, it's just phenomenal. You're, you're leading the way of exercise oncology in Ireland, and it's really exciting to see. So delighted to have you on and chat to you. So before we jump into you know these different topics, because I think they're really interesting, do me a favor, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you're up to, and, and how you got there.
0: Okay great. Well, thanks a million Kieran for inviting me onto the onto the podcast and it's it's great to have the opportunity to talk about what we're doing. Um, so my background, I am I'm a physio, I'm a physiotherapist, and I am a lecturer in Trinity. My lecturing, actually, my lecturing background is in the, um, in interprofessional learning. I run the interprofessional learning program for the Faculty of Health Sciences in Trinity. So we, um, we, we create opportunities for all of the different undergrad health science programs to learn about each other so that they can improve how they, how they collaborate um, then in the future in, in prepare them for multidisciplinary team working. So that's my my academic side, that's my assistant professor role. And I suppose from my research side then, um, we've done a lot of work over the last number of years um, in looking at how we can incorporate exercise into supporting our patients who are living with and beyond cancer. And I suppose my main interest will be in supporting those with the upper GI cancers, um, particularly those that are um, scheduled for and recovering from esophagectomy. Um, so for, for esophageal cancer. So that's really our, my, main, my main work at the moment. <laughs>
1: that's it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so listen, the, the upper GI is, is fascinating. Um, tell us a little bit mm. about what do you mean by upper GI? Um, why is it important to look at this population?
0: So when we're talking about the upper GI cancers, I mean we've mainly focused on the um, esophageal cancers, um, the gastric cancers, and now we're moving in more so to the the pancreatic and the and the liver cancers. So they're they're the main cancers that we're including in the in the upper GI um, remit. Um, Our work in this area started around 2013, 2014. Um, We have been very lucky in our center that we have had one of the the big professors of surgery, Professor Reynolds, um, who is very, very interested in, you know, how he can improve outcomes for this group. So, you know, the esophageals have a lot of morbidity associated with their cancer, you know, they have a lot of weight loss before they even get diagnosed. They have problems with swallowing. Um, they can become uh, very sarcopenic and uh, during their neoadjuvant therapy, a lot of them um, now have multimodal therapy. So they might have um, chemoradiotherapy before surgery, or they might have chemotherapy before and after surgery. So a lot of morbidity associated with that, a lot of weight loss and um, I suppose functional decline with that. Um, and and then, of course, the esophagectomy itself, which is the, the, main, the main curative intervention for esophageal cancer, um, postoperatively major changes in um, nutrition, major changes in um, absorption, problems with uh, weight loss and with that big functional decline. And, you know, that's really seen uh, with, you know, with the quality of life scores that have been collected over the last number of years. You know, you might see that Certain domains of quality of life might uh, improve as people recover, but their functional domains and their role functioning and their physical functioning domains remain impaired. So that's from the patient's perceived point of view. And we did a little bit of quantitative work where we looked at that and, you know, we could see big differences um, between our esophageal cancer survivors and our, um, and I suppose, match controls and things like that. We see that they have, they have a lot of impairments. So they're really, they're a very complex group. They've all this nutrition complexity going on, um, big understudied functional impairments with that. Um in a in the context of it quite being quite a serious cancer, you know, high risk of recurrence, um, and very much understudied. You know, we hadn't we hadn't looked at addressing this this cancer type before. So Prof. Reynolds really is somebody who has spearheaded the um I suppose, improvements in the standard of care for patients with esophageal cancer, particularly in Ireland, but also worldwide. He had done a lot with um, the dieticians to improve their, um, you know, their nutritional status, particularly preoperatively. And he had increasing interest in, well, OK, well, how can we how can we address other Domains of quality of life that are impaired here, in particular their physical status, because I suppose he recognised they weren't they weren't getting back to normal. They were getting back to a level of recovery, but they needed a lot, a lot more um, to really optimise their their um, their their quality of life. Um, so we we did a little bit of work with them, and you know we recognised that. This weight loss and this malnutrition was one of the biggest barriers that patients reported and experienced to, you know, actively engaging in their their activities of daily living and their their normal activities uh, once they got into survivorship. So working closely with dietitians was something that was very important to us as well. So I suppose that. That creates you know the the picture as to when we started looking at this um it came from that recognition that this group are very complicated, have a lot going on um and are very understudied and very much driven by the by the professor of surgery who really wanted to do his utmost to try and improve his out- the outcomes for this group so that's that's why we that's why we looked at this group as a as a starting point
1: i think it's it's fascinating in just seeing the trajectory of that in that these kind of issues can present before a lot of the, the diagnosis and treatments then are mm-hmm. often worsened by that. And then the road to recovery is so much you know harder and longer mm-hmm. to get back to that kind of preoperative uh. status. And, and as you mentioned, like the complex dynamic between nutritional status and energy and the ability mm-hmm. to do activity. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. I, I'd imagine you're kind of looking at it and going, of course, we have to combine different areas to come together.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's two things. I think, you know, the the um y- you've got that that balance there, that en- that energy balance and the need to, you know, incorporate your dietetic colleagues when you're prescribing exercise to make sure that's that balance is there. But also, I think from the patient's perspective, you know, they they experience such complicated and debilitating symptoms afterwards, you know, a lot of malnutrition, a lot of mal- malabsorption. Um, we've done some work with the surgeons for, you know, things like alteration and gut hormones and things like that. So they become, you know, it, it takes over, you know, how they eat, when they eat, you know, things like dumping syndrome and how that impacts, you know, how they can, how they can actually participate in their, in their normal daily lives. So, They become quite fixated on that and it's something that needs to be addressed um, before they can or in tandem with any kind of exercise prescription because otherwise it's just, you know what, I'm, I'm really just trying to get my, my nutrition side focused. I can't focus on anything else. And, you know, concerns about weight loss and things like that because they can lose a dramatic amount of weight and um, it can be very worrying. And I suppose when they come back to clinic, you know, that's what the focus is on. It's on weight and it's on, you know, the on on eating, on feeding. So exercise and getting back to doing any kind of activity isn't on their radar and isn't on their family's radar. So um, we, we need to we need to acknowledge that and work with that in order to try and get them exercising again.
1: And uh, you can kind of appreciate why, you know, if you look at like that type of treatment mm-hmm. schedule, all the symptoms and then if you're someone who mm-hmm. who isn't comfortable or, or, you know, not a regular exerciser and then we come in and say, look, we've got to change your diet and do all this stuff and really focus on this. And we got to exercise and we got to get you going out mm-hmm. to the gym three times, you know, that's a lot to take on board on top of everything yeah. else that a, that a cancer diagnosis yeah. brings. So with the the weight loss, is the emphasis then on um, weight maintenance or is it on weight gain? Is it is it kind of like stabilize the weight loss or are you trying to put them in a surplus and, and put back on weight?
0: So when the dietitians are working with them, I, it really depends on what the patient themselves is presenting with. So even within this restore protocol, we leave the dietetic um piece very individualized. So for some patients it can be, it can, it's, it's weight gain, you know, they they've lost a lot of weight and they're they're trying to they're trying to gain weight again. Um I suppose during treatment obviously you know that focus on maintaining weight or prevention of weight loss, you know, during that new adjustment treatment piece to try and stop getting to that piece. But certainly in our in our restore trial when we're when we're past all of that um for, for some patients, it's trying to gain weight again. For other patients, it's trying to um, improve how they can eat so you know when they eat the timing of eating size uh, portion sizes the types of foods that they eat um, and there can be a lot of education around that so that the, the food that they take on is actually being absorbed properly um, and others need far more complicated um, dietetic input to address absorption issues um, that, that may arise so it's it's very much tailored we did have one or two patients where weight loss was the, was the goal um, but that was the exception rather than the norm um, but for a lot of patients, it's around at least maintaining, if not gaining a little bit of weight.
1: One of the things that I kind of struggle with myself is is because this field is so complex and you're dealing with the nutritional considerations, alterations in gut and absorption, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Then the physical limitations and the comorbidities that everyone is getting such an individualized program that you're, it's trying to find that balance between like the, the kind of strict RCT and Homogeneous sample versus if you aim for that, you're mm-hmm. never going to do the trial in the first place because yeah.
0: there is such heterogeneity
1: yeah. across the board. Um, and the challenges that come up every day with these different cases is just, yeah. you know, lots of uh, learning opportunities.
0: <laughs> lots- Learning, lots of learning. Um, I think our when we designed Restore in particular, um, we wanted it to be pragmatic. We wanted it to be something that, you know, if tomorrow we know we had a windfall and Restore could be implemented clinical service, what would it look like? And um, we wanted it to be to be relevant in that setting. We didn't want it to be something that was only relevant to a very small percent of already an understudied cohort, and we didn't want it to be something that you know. From from certainly, like our exercise pres- prescription side is you know is, is prescribed and you know is, is is progressive and follows all of the all all of the normal rules. But the dietetic side, if we were to say, well, only those who require weight gain management i mean you're just slashing your your cohort again and it's it's how relevant is it you know how relevant is it to that group then if if that's all you're doing so um no our our dietetic side is individualized dietetic counseling and is very much responding to to the needs that the, that that person um presents with
1: let's let's dive into the restore trial and, and talk about um how you designed it why you designed it that way and what are you looking at
0: yeah. Okay. So Restore Start. Well, Restore start stands for Rehabilitation Strategies Following Esophagogastric Cancer. It's now extended to include lots of other upper GI cancers, but. We still like we still like the restore piece, so we're dealing with that. Um, so restore started in um, around tw- a tw- 2014, 2013. We we originally put the grant together for the Health Research Board in Ireland, and at that time we like that. As I said, you know Professor Reynolds was you know really the, the spearhead here. You know he was the one that said, "Look, I want my patients to be to be studied," and came to us looking for that. And I think that's. That was key. You know, it's really important as to how it worked. Um, So we worked with him. So we worked with surgery. We worked with our colleagues in um, dietetics. We worked with the um, upper GI translational oncology group. So the scientists. And we all sat down together and we devised a protocol that... I suppose, addressed a lot of the needs. There was very little in the literature. So some of the scoping work that we've done informed what Restore looked like. And, you know, a lot of clinical expertise informed what Restore needed to look like as well. And um, I suppose we recognised that, you know, we needed this collaborative approach. We needed to have um, a physio exercise prescription. We needed um, dietetics in with their their nutritional advice. But we also recognised that this cohort have a lot of a lot of symptoms that are unusual, you know, and um, that have impacted them in their in their survivorship. So we wanted to involve as many members of the multidisciplinary team as possible in delivering education sessions that would address some of these concerns and I suppose normalize some of them for people as well and the validity that comes from that. So we signed a 12 week program that um, involved supervised and home based program, I suppose, with your standard, you know, twice supervised um, at the start, tapering down to once a week um, and down to once a fortnight at the end. And at the same time, the amount of exercise we asked them to do at home increased. So we wanted them up to their five days a week at the end of the program. Um, and we, you know, we provided them with their. With their heart rate monitors, with their um, with their goals, you know, our behavior change techniques, and um, that was our that was our our, our exercise piece, um, mainly aerobic exercise at the very start. So our first feasibility study just included aerobic exercise. But now we have incorporated some resistance exercise training as well. Some of that limited by resource available to us. You know, um, you know, in in the last number of years, we've been able to get some resistance um, exercise equipment in. So that's enabled us to to include that. And obviously they do need they have a lot of they have a lot of sarcopenia. So they do need um, resistance exercise in with that. Um, so that's the, the exercise side. With that, we decided that the most clinically real and appropriate approach would be to have um, individualised dietetic counselling. So, you know, patients come in, they're seen by the dietitian. you know, they're scheduled in and around their exercise class. So it's one visit and they're seen as often as they need as needed. Everyone's seen at least um, seven times. But if they need more, they get that. Um, and it's very much driven by the by the patient. And, and what they present with um and then every we have eight uh, multidisciplinary uh education sessions where we bring all of the patients uh together so we have a nice big group um effect for that and we have surgeons coming so the surgeon will come and give a, a talk on you know common symptoms post esophagectomy the dietitians do a lovely general talk around portion sizes and bringing in you know kind of Props you almost, but actual foods to show what different portion sizes look like and how you can eat um, after after your esophagectomy. Um, the OTs do a little bit on um, fatigue management. We have the uh, support groups, the Esophageal Cancer Fund have come in and spoken around the services that they provide. We do mindfulness, all that type of thing. So it, and I suppose that group session provides an opportunity for the patients to talk to each other and the participants to talk to each other. and um, the expertise that they get from that, you know, we've done a lot of focus groups out of Restore as well. And, you know, a lot of the time they say things like I never met someone who had an esophagectomy before. I've anyone at home struggles to say the word esophagus, it's <laughs> lovely to talk to you know what it is. Um, you know, and also, I suppose, validating symptoms against each other, you know, oh, you get that symptom. I get that as well. I was worried about that. How do you manage that? Um, And even one comment that came back that was like, you know, one lady who was, I think, five or six years post esophagectomy, she said something about, you know, she goes to her GP, but she actually knows more about esophageal cancer and the symptoms at this point than her GP does. So it was lovely to speak to patients who understood that. So I suppose we provided that bit of space as well for people to actually meet and greet each other, you know, and, and share that. So that was um, that's our restore program. We we looked at the feasibility of it firstly uh, with that first um, 2014 grant, um, just in a small sample, around 12 um, participants and it was well accepted. We really good recruitment. I mean, we get recruitment at around 40 percent. Um, because of the link with the with the surgical teams, That's I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And because of the um the needs, this this patient cohort are just they're they're crying out for they're they're crying out for somebody to to look after their needs in, in survivorship. So it's 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 those two things I think drive that. Um really good retention and adherence and you know we'd know dropouts and all that kind of stuff in the in the feasibility study. So we looked at it from um our pilot um rct followed that which again um was very acceptable and feasible um it showed an improvement in cardiopulmonary fitness which we measured as our as our primary kind of tangible quantitative outcome um because of its alignment with function and quality of life and all of the, the physical aspects that we were interested in and um, they maintained their weight and their body composition there was no weight loss which was a uh, very important outcome for us from the dietetic side. And um, while well, I suppose we use the ERTC to, to measure quality of life, which I suppose it's, it's it's hard to kind of find change in that. So we didn't, we didn't see see change there, but, you know, we did focus groups afterwards that were powerful, you know, the 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 narratives that patients had um around their the impact that Restore had on their on their social engagement, you know, on their we had a few stories, one man, you know, had a goal at the end of Restore, he was going to climb the sugar loaf, which, you know, you you might be familiar with in Whitlow, it's, you know, A a small mountain or a large hill, whatever (laughs) you want. Definitely (laughs) a hill. (laughs) It's, um, you know, it was a really tangible goal for him and he did it and he did it with friends. And, you know, it was like, you know, he spoke about the way Restore gave him the confidence to do that. And, um, it you know, we've a few quotes from him and the word confidence just comes up time and time again. And it also gave his friends confidence that he could do it, you know, and, you know, alleviated concerns that because he had achieved this, you know, he climbed the sugarloaf. He, um, of course, he'd be able to do other things then. sure, You know, look at him, he climbed the sugarloaf. Now I'll be able to do whatever else people ask me. We had another really nice story, which I really love. Um, one of our one of our participants is very involved in his local community and local sport, GA, sorry, in Hurling and uh, all of that stopped when he was diagnosed and um he was now 2 years i think post esophagectomy and he hadn't he hadn't gone back in any way and by participating in restore you know his son started to realize oh do you know dad we're going down to the match do you want to come with us so you know, reintegrating him. And by the end of the program, he was back training the under six hurling team in his local community, which is a quite an energetic um, <laughs> endeavor. So he, um, you know, that's, that's what matters. You know, that's the, that's the impact. Um, so to get, to get people re-engaged, to get them, to get them feeling that perceived physical fitness, that's, that's it. You know, they perceived that they were able to get out and do these physically demanding tasks. Um, and, you know, whether it's an ability thing, whether it's a confidence thing, whether it's, um, you know, family concern or, you know, just that message that it's OK to do it. Um, I think Restore has has provided the, the upper GIs with that. I think
1: you hit the nail on the head there. Like I'm really mm-hmm. starting to move away from kind of the standardized questionnaires with like the ERTC ER, particularly with how they're often delivered, you know, it's hard for patients to understand. They're like, what are you asking me this for? And especially if you're given a couple of questionnaires at the same time, they're like, ask me this, the last questionnaire." And I think you can get so much more value out of that qualitative approach where you do get these kind of focus groups together and you start to pull Mm -hmm. out these teams that would never be captured with the same, um, you know, power and story that any ROTC would, you know?
0: no. No, no, and it is—it's amazing that like with our see it, maybe student numbers, and you know, you kind of—I think sometimes you know with upper GI's, there's you know it's male dominated, so you might get maybe a ceiling effect much more quickly in terms of your of your questionnaires. But you know, it's the, that subtlety, that kind of role of physical functioning piece didn't come out where it actually had such. It was real. like we had we had people go back to work because they were they were more confident after after participating in Restore. They saw that they could do things as opposed to conscious, conscious of not doing it. So, you know, there's certainly value in doing that. And a lot of what we would do now, um, you know, we've we've just received almost a million from the HRB. Mm-hmm to look at restore at a much bigger scale, bigger numbers um, and roll it out again um, in a much more definitive trial and, you know, we're mixed methods analysis all the way. Because even if the ERTC does improve, for example, you know, um, it's the patient stories that are the much more real and impactful, I think, um, piece and ultimately what matter.
1: Yeah, so I, I might have missed this. What's the time frame at which this is being implemented relative to to treatments?
0: Yeah, yeah. So they, they need to be at least three months post post surgery. So most of them, anyone on the magic regimen, will be will be finished um at that point. With our feasibility, um we study we were we were liberal, we just said you know, whatever, whatever time frame, we'll try and get people within two years. But, you know, if we can, people experience symptoms, you know, there's data there to say that people are still um, experiencing problems up to five years post. So, you know, depending on how recruitment goes um, and that balance between a homogenous group and, you know, what's real in the in the world, um, we, we may extend that up. But, you know, we're. They, they do. They do experience symptoms up to that time. So it's still it's still relevant to fill that void with with um with some sort of, of rehab at that point. Mm-hmm.
1: Probably even more so with with someone who has been mm-hmm. burdened by that for years after treatment and you come along and they're like, I've mm-hmm. needed this for so long, you know. And um, yeah. they they're often ones yeah. that can experience these subtle changes that no one really tells them about that they're going to experience. Whereas a mm-hmm. lot of people going through treatment, there is a lot more attention on them. And so they, they yeah. kind of get forgotten about. And so you're right, it's a, it's an incredibly important group.
0: Yeah. And I think for esophageals as well, you know, where you have a, a high mor- mortality cancer, um, they can feel very alone. You know, they are, gosh, I'm still here five years and I've, I've not met anyone else. And it's so valuable for them to have that to come, to come back to. Yeah.
1: So this is really interesting to me because a lot of kind of these, these recent calls around prehabilitation, can you talk to what you would think that would look like and if it would be feasible and what challenge you would anticipate if someone said, look, we want to do a prehabilitation trial in esophageal cancer mm-hmm. to, to try and mitigate these?
0: Yeah.
1: Do you see that as something that's feasible? Do you see any challenges with that?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. So it's <laughs> <laughs> but it's also feasible. Um, so our pre hit program has just received funding from the HRB and the it's the it's the MRCG in Ireland. It's the Medical Research Charities Group, and our our partner charity is the Irish Cancer Society. So it's a it's a kind of a joint funding program. So we're we're looking at this at this question as well, I suppose in recognition that our esophageals come to us later and they they really need something beforehand. I suppose the few things with the with the esophageal cancers in particular, um, and the gastrics, a lot of them can get preoperative um chemo radio. OK, and chemotherapy, um, depending on the on the regimen that they're on. But more and more, we're seeing like multimodality approaches, you know, where they it's it's combined, um, a, a combined chemo radio plus, plus surgery. So I suppose you have an opportunity there during their during their new adjuvant therapy um, to exercise and to prevent a client and try and support people through that. So it gives you that that longer window. Typically, then patients come back um, after their neoadjuvant therapy. They they go back to clinic. They're restaged, and they are then given their date for surgery. And typically, you're looking at maybe two or three weeks there, um, and that's your real window of opportunity where you know you somebody is focused right now. I'm going for surgery. They're they're in the right the right head space for that, and um, that's your window to optimize fitness, I suppose, as your as your primary indicator for that. There's your huge challenges with, with with actually implementing it then in practice. We're not like the UK in Ireland. We we don't have that. They have a very strict KPI in the in the UK where they have to between decision for surgery and surgery date. They have a very short time frame. We don't have that. Um, there is, you know, there's still a, a rush to get or not a push to get people um, to surgery as soon as possible without delays. But there is a little bit of leeway there for prehab. So I worked with um, a group a number of years ago in U- UMC Utrecht, um, looking as part of this PREPARE trial, looking at inspiratory muscle training um, as a preoperative um, intervention to reduce, I suppose, after me you can get a lot of morbidity, even though we have cancer care um, for a me. Move to your centers of excellence, where you have your big multidisciplinary team involvement, which is, you know, largely focused on reducing post-operative morbidity. But even then, it's it's associated with higher morbidity than a a lot of other um, uh, cancer surgeries. Um, So PREPARE was very focused on reducing post-operative pneumonia. Within spiritual muscle training, and I suppose in spiritual muscle training has the advantages of giving somebody a handheld device. It's very feasible; you can do it at home. Um, no burden of appointments and things like that. Um, but unfortunately, it wasn't shown to be effective. It didn't. It while in uh, preoperative, in spiritual muscle strength improved. It didn't impact postoperative outcome. So that said to us that so, okay, we need to we need to do something that's a little bit more, a higher level here. And around the same time, we had done some feasibility work looking at preoperative high intensity interval training um, in those scheduled for colorectal cancer and uh, for colorectal cancer surgery and um, thoracic surgery. And it was shown, you know, despite concerns. It was feasible. We could we could get it, get it done with good collaboration with the with the surgical teams. Um, And, you know, there were some promising results from that as, you know, a method of improving preoperative fitness in this really short window of time. So our I suppose our current work, our pre-HIT program, is trying to look at that in more detail. So we have um, we have funding for an RCT where we're going to uh, prescribe two weeks of preoperative high-intensity interval training um, for at least two weeks of preoperative HIT training uh, prior to a um and um, thoracotomy for lung cancer, and see if it can improve as a primary outcome preoperative fitness. We won't have the numbers or the funding or the budget to look at, you know, post-operative outcome um, in a meaningful way. But we will collect that data um, and have a look at it um, from a, from an exploratory point of view, um, and we'll do a big feasibility analysis around that as well. And look to see, well, is this is this something that that fits within the clinical pathway? Is it something that's going to be relevant? We're actually comparing it to um, more a kind of an active control type arm. Which uh, patients come to a much less intense, much less regular exercise program um, that's been de- delivered with the with the clinical service, not as high intensity, you know, more of a moderate intensity um, aerobic exercise program, but with a lot more um, advice and, um, I suppose, education and smoking cessation and that type of thing. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, is which has the which has the, the, the bigger impact on patients. So that's our that's our, our work there. But yeah, prehab is is needed, definitely for that group where they've, they've high morbidity, but not without its challenges to get it in.
1: Yeah, I've no doubt. Just trying to put yourself in in the mind frame of someone who's who's signed up for that trial of getting mm-hmm. the diagnosis, wrapping the head around that and then going, Oh, by the way, now you have to do this exercise programme and you got surgery into you know, it's it's a lot to yeah. take on um, I think yeah, that's, that's what makes it so exciting as well.
0: Yeah, that's so important. we are I'm a big believer in um, PPI, uh, Public and Patient Involvement, and we'd have a lot of patients informing what we do um, in terms of our design, our, our information leaflets, um, but particularly our recruitment approaches. And that was something that came through was, you know, when you're recruiting people for prehab, you know, what... Um, you need to get get into their their mindset. They've just been told they're going for major surgery. While it's not a huge surprise because they've been, you know, they've been on this journey for a little while. You need to be mindful of that in terms of how you deliver that information um, and how they're how they're going to perceive it and where they're going to prioritize that in the context of, you know, major surgery is happening as well. And I suppose that fear that if I do this exercise, will my surgery be delayed? And it's very important that we have everyone on board that, no, it's it's that's not that's not the purpose here. The purpose is to optimize you for surgery so that your recovery isn't too late.
1: Are there thresholds in Ireland whereby if they're so, so low fitness that they won't go ahead with surgery?
0: Uh, no, not, not as far as I'm aware. Um, in terms of those, the, 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 the algorithms with the with the lungs, there, there may be with the esophageals Um, with the esophageals. No, I haven't seen anybody who hasn't gone forward for surgery because of low fitness concerns. They would take a little bit more time to optimize them. But normally, I suppose with the esophageals, normally it's their nutritional status that might be more problematic as opposed to, like we wouldn't, we wouldn't do CPETS routinely um, for our, for our esophagectomy patients, they would all have their PFTs done, Um, but it would normally be weight loss and malnutrition um, preoperatively, that would be the, 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 the barrier to proceed into surgery or the need to optimize more more completely. Um, but we would normally do CPETs um, for the for the um for the esophageals.
1: So with the with the restore trial, have you seen anything outside of comorbidities and, and physical limitations, anything unique to esophageal cancer that is affecting your exercise prescription or anything that you un- unanticipated that has come up and you're like, geez, we didn't think of that.
0: The I think once we get over once we get over the initial concerns around around weight and weight loss and um, once once we can kind of that that's an education piece and i think having the dietitian on board is a, is a big comfort to patients on that so that is once we can get over that we seem to you know we we can get them onto a fairly standardized program. Sometimes we find they can be very weak from a muscle, a muscle strength point of view. So we'd have to start very low with weights or even, you know, they mightn't be able to tolerate um, a lot of time on the, you know, on on something like an exercise bike. We'd have to switch up modalities um, a little bit more frequently. Um, And some may have, you know, kind of restricted range of movement pieces around, you know, if they have the the thoracotomy. Um, So it might have restricted range of movement to the upper limb um, from that. But To be honest, once we, once we can get them on board with, with, um, you know, get over the the weight loss piece, they tend to, they tend to follow as per, as per what we would, what we would expect. Um, Again, I think there's a little bit of clinical reasoning going on in the background where we would, we would work with them individually, any aches and pains and things we would, you know, change, change up modality and, and see what, what we can do and, and work them around it. And that's the only other piece then that has been the barrier has been, you know, with these patients, you know, they come in and they're supervised by us and then they go home to do their exercise programme and their families have grave concerns about them going out for these walks or going out on the bike or whatever it may be. So there's a there's been a, a piece around that that has been has been quite protective, but um for the most part, we can we can manage them as per normal.
1: Yeah, I wonder if it's worth looking at maybe like the, the kind of family education as well in there when you're kind of looking at expanding this. Where bring your partner in and bring your family member yeah. in. Let's uh, let's educate everyone together and try and yeah. lower those
0: shared yeah. barriers or fears. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's that's a very good point. Yeah. Um.
1: So. I wish you all the best with this. It's really exciting work. I'm, I'm excited to see the, the results of mm. this and hopefully you get some good information from it. Um, mm. Let's talk a little bit about this this idea of collaboration because you've built an incredible team there and no doubt it's a result of a lot mm-hmm. of hard work, probably a lot of no's and some yeses. So, and I, I think it also relates to kind of your background with interprofessional learning because. I think it's a skill that postgrad students and early career researchers are, are desperate for in learning how to navigate this space, mm-hmm. especially when you're blending that medical s- side of things and learn to speak that language. Mm-hmm. So, you know, talk a little bit about this idea of interprofessional development or, or collaboration.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I think has been fundamental to what we've been been able to do. And, you know, what we're doing is, you know, we're, we're doing what we can within our with our own setting as well. And some of it is, you know, is limited by that. But, you know, we have the value of the multidisciplinary team in terms of, you um, designing, and forming, recruiting, overcoming concerns has just been, has been absolutely invaluable. You know, when we started, our group started working way back in 2009. And at that time, we, we would have gone to the surgeons or to the oncologist and said, look, we want to do this. And a lot of concerns and fears around, you know, you want to exercise our patients. Do you not know they have cancer? And, you know, all this kind of thing. So, you know, we would have done a lot around that to around then to build up trust um you know early wins show what we can do uh, manage those first events demonstrate uh, competence come to multidisciplinary team meetings be part of the team have a presence there not just be an adjunct um have a presence at clinic um and i suppose do do our bit as as part of that um and then over time you know we started to see a shift in terms of um they came to us You know, and um, I've mentioned Prof Reynolds a few times and his patients absolutely, absolutely love him. But, you know, he has been a huge driver in terms of setting the standards that we need to have rehab as part of the care that we that we deliver to our patients. So, you know, when he started coming to us, that started to, you know, show leadership and example. And we started to see others follow as well. Um, I think when we started particularly Restore, we came from a very clinical standpoint where, you know, a lot of us were, were physios, work had worked clinically and were interested in, well, what's real to the patient? What does their pathway look like and how can we design a research programme that you know, blends with that, and that would, like that, could be implemented tomorrow if mm-hmm. if you know if we were lucky enough. Um, so we would have brought a lot of people on board at that time, um from different backgrounds and different professions, and um, brought them together and tried to design something together and try and do things in as clinically normal uh, a way as possible. Um, outside of that, I mean, when when you think about, let's say. Interprofessional learning and what what we aim to do for the undergraduate students um, across the board, not just in terms of cancer, but in terms of collaboration within the healthcare environment. There's a lot of emphasis on knowing your own roles so and knowing your own scope of practice and what you what you bring to the team, understanding what others do and respecting what what others do. And a lot of the time, we can have a lack of knowledge about what others do. And we can feel threatened where there is overlapping roles, for example. Instead of embracing that as a you know, an added expertise. Um, so there's there's a, a a piece there where we we actually need to know more about what others do. Um, so again, our 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 cancer work would have done a lot of that. We do a lot of outreach to other um to other professions. I do a lot of you know study days for nurses, you know, talking about exercise and cancer, and any opportunity we get like that to try and normalize the exercise message because patients trust their nurses so much, and if they're if they're reinforcing the message, well, then, you know, we'll have we'll have better likelihood of engagement and success. Um, so that there's that piece in addition to, you know, all of the fundamentals around, you know, your good communication and respectful communication and good teamwork practice. Mm-hmm. But I think fundamentally, we need to understand what everyone does. And, um, you know, that when we go and we talk about exercise, that we need to understand that who the people we talking to may not fully understand what it is you mean and explaining that properly and showing what you can do in a safe way and, um, you know, building trust in that in that manner. So that's that's been a big part of, of what we've done.
1: Um, I, I'm going to come yeah. back to that, but uh, there's a lot of people listening to this that won't be from Ireland and don't necessarily know the landscape of how Trinity works with, mm-hmm. you know, hospitals in the area. Mm-hmm. And give us an overview of that, what that looks like.
0: So I work at at Trinity. And my office is, I suppose, in the, the Trinity Centre for Health Sciences on St. James's Hospital campus, which is our main academic teaching hospital. So, you know, you've got that nice on site collaboration. And in the in recent years, we've been working towards um, developing Ireland's first National Cancer Institute. So the Trinity St. James's Cancer Institute, which recently got OECI accreditation, which is great. So I suppose that's, you know, we'd have a lot of, of crosstalk between the two. And we were aiming, you know, aiming high and Aiming to build, you know, our, our comprehensive cancer centre um, under that Trinity St James's Cancer Cancer Institute umbrella, so that creates um, a foundation for our, you know, for our, our clinical and academic and research collaboration. As I said, that that's the first National Cancer Institute um, in I think it was 2000 and 2006 I suppose under yeah under the. Gosh, I'm confused now about the year of the cancer strategy. But under the last cancer strategy, the... Um we, we reorganised our cancer services in Ireland, and that has been very significant in terms of improving the um, diagnostics, the treatments, the outcomes for patients. So, instead of having cancer care um, distributed amongst lots of different regional hospitals, it is centralised to eight specific cancer centres um, around the country, with four in Dublin and others around um, in, in Galway, and Limerick, and, and Cork, and Waterford. So, that has been very, very very important in terms of how cancer care is centralised and how we can, I suppose, build research programmes that are aligned with those particular cancer centres. And a lot of those cancer centres would have academic affiliations in terms of um, ourselves in Trinity or um, the likes of UCD or or CSI as well, which are the other two, the other big um, universities in Dublin and, of course, Galway and Cork as well. Um, So... More recently, the latest cancer strategy, uh, the 2017 one, has looked at. I suppose, okay, now we have our reorganised cancer service, our, our cancer centres. Um, how and we've all these we've we've improved outcomes and we've lots more survivors for the first time our new cancer strategy now talks about survivorship and talks about um, optimising survivorship care there's a whole chapter dedicated to it within the strategy and we have um, our survivorship manager within the National Cancer Control Programme within Ireland as well so it's it's on the agenda for the first time and that has given us a platform from which we can you know strategically align a lot of our work um, and collaborate a lot with the with the NCCP on that. So we, we are now seeing a push towards, you know, um, psycho-oncology services, exercise services, you know, allied health, um, you know, more into your kind of what, what would a survivorship clinic look like in Ireland? Um, you know, which is a little bit behind other countries, but certainly in terms of where we're at, that's where we're that's where we're driving forward at the moment. And it comes in the back of improved outcomes for patients. So that's what that, that that that's what it looks so like. That,
1: that's that's the thing that fascinates me. You know, <laughs> I'm Irish and I haven't got a clue what's going on there. But um, <laughs> learning about these things in recent years, particularly with you know the four cancer centres in Dublin and then the others spotted over in a couple of cities, and you look at you know <laughs> the mm-hmm. relative size of Ireland and how how difficult it can be to get to some of these centres from some of our country yeah. roads. You know, um, yeah, yeah, there's yeah, yeah. there's a real. Um, Disproportion there in terms of access and and availability of resources, and that and that presents a, a really unique challenge. Mm-hmm. If you have some fella living up in the hills of Donegal, and what do we do for, yeah. for yeah. him? You know,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely, and that's that's a very real issue. And I think Donegal is a, a you know is particularly. Um, Geographically, it's it's particularly difficult to get to particularly, you know, um, maybe Galway or, you know, wherever the nearest or even some of the cancer centres in Dublin. It's, it's a huge trek. And we, we would find, you know, with with a lot of our interventions that, you um, know, Travel. Travel is the is the biggest barrier. And that is certainly one of the disadvantages, you know, that we, we just we, we don't have services in every in every county or in every, you know. But again, you know, it's it's to build that expertise within the cancer centers and to have um to have a, a team, to have a multidisciplinary team that can actually have expertise, particularly in the more complex cancers, I suppose. Like I, I would, I'd have a, my head spaces in the esophageals, but, you know, um which is. We have um, St James's Hospital and and Cork are our two biggest centres there, but um, which again is it can be big big travel for for people who are who are coming from from dispersed areas. But yeah, it's it's trying to get that trying to get that balance.
1: It, it also speaks to this conversation that we kind of arbitrarily just say we want exercise as a standard of cancer care, and um, without necessarily the conversation about the standard of cancer care in different countries is so different, you know, in Germany, mm-hmm. exercise is a standard of cancer care, you know, yeah. compared to the likes of mm-hmm. Ireland, where it's it's now starting to, d- to be developed at that level where we're talking about comprehensive cancer centers. And we haven't even defined what mm-hmm. standard care is to then build off it. And then the infrastructure and funding and resources mm-hmm. is going to be different. Yeah. I, I think that's what. Yeah. A, a lot of us, when we're kind of getting into this, we look at these bigger labs that are in the States and in Canada they are they're just machines. And it's really inspirational yeah. to look at that. But what we often miss is the hard work that has taken to get to there. And I think you're a, a shining example of that, to go from where you were in 09 in the space of a decade to now have this team. I think it's it's phenomenal. And stop being Irish and playing it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I think what what you've done, the 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 team you've built, and what you've got coming up is is really fantastic.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I'm very Irish, so I can't I can take a compliment. <laughs> uh,
1: it's so <laughs> awkward. <laughs> oh
0: God. Well, I suppose anything we've done, I suppose we'd we'd look at it as something that's very um very very relevant to you know. The, um, the services that we have and trying to just trying to do our best for, for the patients that are going through the going through treatment within within the hospital. And, you know, I suppose what we've what we've tried to do is just try and yeah, try everything that we do. Is it relevant? Is it is it improving? Is it improving patient outcome? Is it improving their quality of life? Is it is it convenient within the pathway? Does it take into account the travel issues? Does it take into account all the other appointments that they have? Um, so we've and I, I think that has helped us in terms of how we've built, because, you know, we're, we're working with the with the MDT and, um, you know, we're we're just really trying to trying to get people on board and and, and just trying to make it as patient centered as we as we possibly can.
1: I think I think that's important in reinforcing you know, we as ex fears or nutritionists want to be doing the hands-on stuff really quickly. and We want to do it now. And you have to keep your eye on the end goal when you realise there's so many meetings, there's so much administration. The time to build that trust and those connections mm-hmm. can take a long time. But mm-hmm. if it's done right and done respectfully, that gives you the platform where you can really, mm-hmm. you know, do all the things that you're looking to do. But the, mm-hmm. the hard work in the initial phase is is... Is yeah. really, really difficult, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it is slow. And I think it's it's like anything I think I've learned from my interprofessional learning role as well, because I'm trying to align, you know, it's all about working with other professions. And, you know, we try to create opportunities for undergrad students to learn um, with, from and about each other. So we try to, you know, get maybe the, the, I don't know, the physiotherapist and the the dietitians together for a session. I mean, when you start trying to align, you know, timetables, you might only have one oh, yeah time to when you get people together. Um, But but try and use that, whatever you can do, you know, those those small wins. um, And that is applied across the board, whether it's interprofessional learning or whether it's um, whether it's, you know, the the cancer survivorship piece, um, those 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 small wins and building trust, building relationships and showing the value. You know, if we do something do it to the best of your ability, do it where it's patient centred, do it if it's in IPL, do it where it's student centred, do it in a way that is going to have a meaningful, a very tangible impact so that you use that time to the the best of your ability. And, you know, from there, hopefully things will, things will grow as well. That's what we've, that's what we've tried to do. And like progress can be slow and, you know, all of that, but it, um, and it, it can feel a little bit local at times as well it can feel like we're you know we, we make great changes in St. James's but even with a you know um, within Ireland we could do more and we could do more outreach into the community as well because you know one big problem we have is that people finish on restore and they did need that close that you know um close supervision and close context at the at the at the time. But once they finish restored, they should be going into their community and out and you know, exercising in 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 more locally. And you know, how do we do that? How do we overcome some of some of the barriers that we see there? Because again, we don't have a big community network in Ireland for cancer or for any other chronic disease. So, you know, it's it's about utilizing all of the resources. It's that collaboration piece as well. I mean, collaboration, from my point of view, isn't just within the hospital, but it's, it's into the community services as well. And, you know, we've we've such rich resource there. It's trying to recognize that and, and you know, use that effectively.
1: It really is. It, it's You're scaling a business ultimately, you know what I mean? Like the going from the, the early days where you're doing all this yourself and you're slowly building out your team, how mm-hmm. do you now manage this? as as a lecturer with the interprofessional course mm-hmm. managing all these different trials and all these different teams how how do you mm-hmm. <laughs> how do you do it
0: <laughs> not sure um we've we've a brilliant team i mean we really do in terms of the you know we we have um I mean, in terms of our, our restore program, we have a, a wonderful project manager. I mean, Linda O'Neill is just she makes me look disorganized. She's super. And uh, we have two brilliant postdocs We've Grainne Sheel and we've we've uh, Kate Tavani, who are both in that ideal space of working half time clinically and half time, um, half time in research. And that allows for that kind of seamless integration between, you know, we know what's going on in clinical practice. They're all informed. We're not getting anyone's, you know, we're working with as opposed to Against or in parallel to um, any kind of uh, developments from the clinical service side, um, so we're really lucky with the with the the senior team that we have, and they really keep they keep everything going, and they're you know they they're um, they're very committed, and we're 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 very very lucky with them.
1: Well, it's it's exciting to see how much you've grown so far, and and. Mm-hmm. Oh, the, the master's programme. Tell us a little oh, bit yeah. about that. Um, yeah. What's you've you, grown so much you're trying to educate other people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I suppose in recognition of the fact that, you know, I, I mean, in terms of in Ireland, you know, we we we're really at the point where strategically we want to start looking at, at survivorship services. We know there's a few dotted around the place here and there, but we don't have, you know, people we don't have the services that we need at the moment. So we're trying to upskill, yeah, upskill the workforce and, you know, outside of Ireland, obviously, as well. Um, So our Master's in Cancer Survivorship is again it's a collaborative type masters it um largely physiotherapy and occupational therapy um leaders on the on the course committee for that and I'm part of that course committee and we're hoping to well we've we've approval we're hoping to have we'll, we'll have it up and running in September and um we're going to offer it on a a number of different levels. So we have options to um, complete a postgraduate certificate, postgraduate diploma, a master's full-time and a master's part-time. And I suppose we're, we're providing so many options because we're hoping to recruit healthcare professionals who are working in the field, who want to go back and take this information and improve and change and you know influence practice so we're offering it on a very flexible and using very flexible models um the modules that we're including as part of it i mean we have some very cancer specific modules around the physical and psychosocial impairments that arise with cancer and its treatment um we're sharing some modules with the translation msc and translation oncology at trinity so really kind of the foundational cancer type uh, type modules. And then we're moving into more, you know, how do you implement? So we have implementation science, we have some innovation modules, and we have um a lot on research skills as well. So we're we're hoping that it's it's broad, appealing. We want it's open to any healthcare professional who's interested in, in um, you know, upskilling in that area um, I'm like that we're really hoping to get people who are in the field who really want to, to upskill and improve their confidence and skills and knowledge um, around the area of cancer survivorships um, both from a, a cancer specific point of view and from more of that well how do I actually do it, how do I implement and innovate and all of that so yeah um, the web page, there's web pages on the um, both the discipline of physiotherapy and discipline of occupational therapy web pages on the Trinity uh, website, and the application link it will be up in the coming weeks, so people can apply. And uh, yeah, we're starting in September, so brilliant, <laughs> It'll be very exciting.
1: So, listen, it, it was a fantastic chat. I want to congratulate you again on all the work you've done. And um, before I go, where can people find you?
0: Oh yeah, I'm on, on Twitter and EM um, EM K. I think is my handle and um yeah on the the trinity website as well